Hi. Okay, so we're here at Coffee and Poetics. Um, I'm Stuart Canton. I'm sitting in for Frank Graham. Um, I'm with uh, Francis Kakugawa. 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 That's great. Um, this is uh, we're going to be getting to know her together because I'm actually not very familiar with her work. That I'd heard of your name, and when it came up in the um, the board meeting, everyone was like, "Oh yes, interviewing her. That's, that's great." Oh, so that's yeah, nice. so I'm, I'm sort of excited that we can, uh, you know, that I can get to talk to you like this and find out about what you're doing because I was wondering then. Now here I am getting to meet you like in person, actually find out. So, um, well. I guess to start, why don't you just tell us something about yourself? I was born in Hawaii in okay. a very small village on the big island. We had no electricity. We had outhouses. Uh, very remote, very isolated. And uh, describe it to you through my poems. Okay. May I do that? Yeah, please. Okay. Let me try the outhouse. Outhouse. A house unpainted, a corrugated roof. Four walls, a floor, six by two and a half, a redwood seat with two round holes, sized to fit two adult bottoms, balanced unused railroad ties, squared over a bottomless pit. Here she sits and answers nature's call. The fear of falling turns her knuckles white as she holds on to the edge of the wooden seat. It's a generic outhouse, unlike the neighbors, where their additional home, though smaller, makes it a throne for three. A wooden box against the wall, filled with red square wrappers, greets her with faint apple scent. At arm's reach, torn sheets of Hilo Tribune Herald hang on a nail. On the floor, a backup supply, Sears and Montgomery Ward, her shaman. Outside the door, a peach tree reaches toward the sky. During the season when in bloom, the scent of peach petals loses to the stench. No flies, no gnats, except for cockroaches dwell below, sometimes over her butt. Dampness and heat create unspeakable odor in a stranger's outhouse. She gags and holds her breath in other outhouses, races home when the need arises, home sweet home. Above all, it is a place of refuge, a place where her need for undisturbed solitude is unquestioned. It is a place where she sits and reads books, comments, true confessions, cover to cover, along with gulps of life in these United States. When called to do the dishes or to stop the rice, she shouts from the, her without, I stay in the toilet. It is a refusal she has perfected after years of practice, respected by neighbors and passers-by. What parent would dare call the empress's daughter when nature's call came first? It was the house of royalty. <laughs> <laughs> I love the um, love the way you can like see similarities to like I don't know the throne. I just think it's yeah, the the contrast between things like the roaches and the railroad bars, and yet it sort of still has this this you know, like relatable universal like power of the throne room. Uh -huh. That's I great. 
dead poets alive. The dead kept me alive all those years growing up, confined to a village so isolated, so unpaved, so unvehicled, so battery-run. Our three-party line, a public service gossip center. The speechless dead took me beyond Montgomery Ward catalogs, dreammakers, until one day I discovered an oracle within the pages, poets long gone, promises of wondrous worlds for the me not yet formed. Oh, how I mourn that breath of ecstasy to travel that road where dreams can go, though not so much in depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. And like a little nobody, to lie down to pleasant dreams. It was the dead who gave me such dreams and showed the woman I'd become to wonder where they could not go and wonder at what got them there. My morning still lay ahead. I still had miles to go. But oh, how I wandered lonely as a cloud. Hmm. So is that about how you first discovered yes. like poetry? Okay. The first book I held in my hand was in first grade, the Dick and Jane series. Mm-hmm. And one day the teacher read a poem, and I grew up speaking Hawaiian pidgin. We never spoke in complete sentences, only in phrases. And she read a poem, and as she read the poem about flowers, I could see the image of a flower in my head. Mm. And it was so dramatic, a dramatic moment for me. I thought, this is what the real right words can do. And when I was six, I said, someday I'm going to have my name on a book. And I never let go of that dream. That is great. That's fantastic. uh, Yeah, so it started in first grade. Do you remember, I don't know why you would, but do you remember like what that poem was, like who that was? It was, all I remember is the image in my head was I could see flowers with red lips, long eyelashes, and just swaying in the sun. And And so on that day on, I said, I will have to speak like this people in the book. Oh, not great. speak like we like we do. So that was being different. That was, you know, really facing a lot of uh, teasing. You know, oh, she speaks like a howley. Howley means uh-huh. white, right. patient. So to be able to be that writer, then I said, okay, I'll have to speak like a howley. It was worth all the teasing. So I tried to do that, and Did- I still speak funny. You know. <laughs> 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 did you did you feel like you couldn't um, you know because I'm not very familiar I know it, I mean I knew it existed and I'm familiar like very from a distance with the Hawaiian culture but I was so it's interesting did you feel like you couldn't express yourself in that way like I guess the the idea of like language and its ability to create art and translating it did you feel there was something that was the poem in English that you yes, yeah. yes did you feel there was something that English had that pigeon yes, didn't okay yes and uh, and so it was always um, I had to set myself away and the only way to do this is to read so I read a lot okay I really read a lot but amazingly the boys in my class from kindergarten uh, first grade all the way through high school they seem to have understood me 
and they would say, yeah, she went to college. <laughs> but it was right. the girls who were, we were different, I guess. There was a form of who does she think she is. Okay. The boys were the one who whispered to me, yeah, you went to college. Uh-huh. that was very nice. <laughs> so they, so that, was, that must have been very difficult then to have, like, you immediately, you like at a young age, immediately kind of become an outsider for yes. pursuing this. Did that did that keep going? Did the did you? It kept going, and for me, that dream became. It really became a tool for forgiveness in my life. Hmm. Uh, I remember growing up, and I was in the third grade, and I was passing a grocery store, and the old timers, they were Japanese, first generation Issei, they were talking about the Kakugawa children, and they were talking about me, and they said, that middle child, that one won't go too far. That one is not too smart. <laughs> and I thought, they're talking about me, and after being ashamed, my vindictive character came up. <laughs> I said, someday, you are going to be waiting in line, buying my book. <laughs> and so, and when I became a teacher, and a new teacher, the old timers would take all the books from the storeroom, and I would go there's no books for me, I would say, someday you will be waiting in line. After my third book was published, and I was living in Honolulu, the community of Pahoa invited me there to celebrate me as a poet. And it was quite a a humbling experience. And guess what? At the end of the all this celebration, I was selling my books. And in line were those four Japanese people. They don't, They can't read English, but they honored books. And so they came and they had my book with two hands around them. They bowed to me, called me Kakugawa's son, the honorific son, and they each bought a book. And wow. I thought, it wasn't a revenge feeling I had. I thought, in my mind, I said, thank you. Because of you, my dream became stronger. Wow, that's really... That's amazing. So that was quite a, and throughout my life, it was always that someday you'll be waiting. You <laughs> <laughs> should add on the the bio: driven by rage, yeah, yeah, healed time. by like <laughs> by time. <laughs> so it was, uh, when I had my first book published, it was interesting. That was in the the first book was in 1969 mm-hmm. in Hawaii, and. The wife of a Japanese judge in the Third Circuit Court said, my husband said, no Japanese man is ever going to date her because she crossed the line into the white world. Isn't that interesting? Because poetry was not for us. In Hawaii, that's for the mainland people. It's not for us. It's who writes poetry. And and he was right because, you know, no Japanese man ever dated (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Are you Japanese? <laughs> is there a, I just wonder like is there no is there no like Hawaiian poetry? There's no song or like in, not in the sixties and seventies. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. The Hawaiian had the Hawaiian chants, but I guess they call them chants or songs. But to have a Japanese woman open mm. herself up through poetry created quite a stir in the state. Yeah, wow. And so there was, it's just interesting because I know that, um, I know Hawaii is totally different, but I just, I know that Japanese have a lot of 
poetry. Did, does that not carry into Hawaii? Because, again, I'm not terribly familiar with haiku. The haiku were written by men. Okay, right? so that's the... And so we, all the immigrants who came, it was the men uh, organized haiku or tanka clubs, and they were the ones who wrote poetry. Okay. Uh-huh. So. so you were twice uh-huh. in the in the hole there. You were you were not so only. So I remember once a journalist interviewing me, and he said, "Was it difficult being a woman?" And I said, "No, it was difficult being a Japanese woman because we were yeah. within the cultural webs." Uh-huh. But wow. uh, I was able to break out of that. And today, yeah. you know, it's all right. It's gone. And that's what the uh, the new book, "Dangerous Woman." You said that this was um, this was actually. A collection from is it is it from literally sixty years ago or is it from over the sixty yes, years? Yes, I collected poems written throughout a span of sixty years. Okay, and um, and I had this horrible thought because I was thinking of the poems I wrote about war and peace, and I read them and I said these were written during the Vietnam War and all this, and they are still relevant today. Mm. Then I had this very uh, is horrible thought to say, you know, the world has not changed for my benefit. <laughs> we have not changed to make my poem still so relevant. <laughs> Isn't that an awful thought? May I read some Yeah, please. Poems? I would love to okay. hear that. Uh, let's see. Poets for Peace. Each time a poet puts pen to paper, there is a sliver of hope for peace. And here's one out of anger. Voice from the Unborn. You promised me eons ago a world free of battlefields, soldiers, children abandoned in fear, in hunger. You offered hope again and again. A world, you said, where we stand hand in hand beyond color, religion, gender. You promised a world free of poison, clean oceans, earth, and air. You, the future, you said, come to be born. This world I create for you, you said. My brothers and sisters believed you. Now old men and women, they wait, they wait. Did you hear the unborn? For eons, you sliced the chrysanthemum off its stalk. You left it naked in the sun. The ashes of Hiroshima were hailed in victory. Beneath them, my ancestors were buried. Stop using me, your unborn child. Promises in meaningless rhetoric for a not now future. I won't wait any longer. I want to be born today. Promise me. This I wrote during the Vietnam War, after I met a wounded soldier. And I compare a real soldier to a wooden, you know, those wooden soldiers, toy soldiers. The wooden soldier, the wooden soldier marches as he was wound to do, steadily, rhythmically, mechanical precision. The only dislocation between manufactured knees, the wooden soldier marches, then stands perfectly still, a soldier no more but a wooden pig. But the soldier I know keeps on marching, 
He keeps on beating, for he has no key to stop him from seeing dislocated limbs of children on children. He has no key to stop him from smelling the river of blood on Sunday afternoons. Forgive us, O soldier, for factorizing keys only for soldiers on wooden knees. Forgive us, soldier, for mechanized birds, wooden logs, and battlefields. I met a Vietnam soldier, and he was painting all what he saw in Vietnam. And when the war ended, one day he went and there was a bonfire and all his oil paintings were in the bonfire. Mm. And his commander said, whatever happens here stays here. So he became very wounded. So I wrote, I wrote a few of the uh, Vietnam poems in a book called Golden Spike. Mm-hmm. Then years later, in my third grade class, Golden Spike, the signs were there. When students need to talk, they hang around my desk, playing with my stapler or realigning my pencils and pens until there is privacy for courage to emerge. Sometimes she quietly started, still playing with pencils. I get up at three in the morning and hear my dad crying. I go downstairs and he's sitting on steps, crying in the dark. He was in the Vietnam War. He won't talk about it, but I watch him cry a lot. He can't sleep. I know because I always see him on the steps. I wish I knew how to help him. Damn, here's that war again. No child ought to be awakened at 3 a.m. by a father's tears. No child ought to be sucked in to 25-year-old wars. No child ought to have dreams of brightly crayon images disrupted by black ashes. I wasn't trained to undo the nature of war. I didn't know how to banish the phantoms of war. Maybe, maybe. I gave her a copy of Golden Spike. I wrote these poems about the war. Maybe your dad will find this book helpful. A few weeks later, in her class journal, private to Miss K, my dad is always reading your book. He carries it around with him, and he's not getting up anymore. He's not crying anymore. Thank you for helping him. Is it okay if I keep the book a bit longer? He wants to know, did you know someone from the Vietnam War? Yes, I wrote in her journal. Tell your dad I knew someone just like him. On the last day of school, once again, she stood near my desk. I'm sorry for not returning your book, but my dad is still reading it. I hate to take the book away from him. I gave that book to both of you. I'm so glad my poems helped him. She held on to our hug, whispering, thank you, Miss Kakugawa. Wow. Is that a, um, did you often share your poetry with uh, the children that you taught? Yes. And uh, I use poetry as the base of my curriculum in all the classes I taught. So we did a lot of poetry writing and other forms of writing. And uh, so. 
Um, that's just such a, that's always, you know, how do you bring poetry to people? Because sometimes when you were describing, you know, the, the sentiment about poetry in Hawaii, it, it may think, you know, so in some ways that's how it feels here on the mainland too, only it's not divided by, um, like cultures as far as like, um, you know, like Japanese descendants or white, it's, it's just sort of like, you know, people who are engineers and people like, I, I have a good friend who's like, poetry, what do I need that for? You know, like, I mean, I think it's cool that you do that, but poetry, you know, I think that's a common thing. Is it, do you think that, um, reaching to them as children is the way or how, how do you, how do you bring the, I think, cause I think it's interesting, your poetry, um, I've heard it described as being very accessible. Um, and I wonder, and then you were saying you share it with children. I wonder if this is like part of your sort of mission to bring poetry out to people who wouldn't otherwise read it or. Uh, yes, I do that with children. And uh, <clears throat> I was a caregiver for my mother who had Alzheimer's disease. So I wrote a lot of poetry about being a caregiver. And it was so helpful. It became so therapeutic mm. that for the past 13 years now, I've been uh, facilitating writing poetry for caregivers, and we meet once a month, and we, uh, and it's an incredible, um, it's an incredible tool. I have, there was a man who came to my session, and he said, he was an engineer, I don't write poetry, don't expect anything from me. And so I read poetry from my caregiving book, and at the end, we all wrote some poems. And he was practically sobbing, and he couldn't read his poem. And it was a poem that said, at the end, I don't want to feel. He yeah. went home that night, and he sent less than a month. He sent me 30 poems written mostly at 3 AM. And I spread them out by dates. And the beginning was cursing God, why me, with my mother, cursing life, a lot of cursing and then acceptance. And at the end, it was, I have learned to become a man. Mm. I want to feel. And he became the most compassionate, the most vigilant caregiver for his mother. And I find this in all of my, uh, the support groups. Many times, people would come very confused, very negative. And as they begin to explore through poetry, they become the most compassionate people That's because, cool. as you know, we may, we need to make so much decisions when we write poetry. Right. It's not like journal writing where, oh, she, I had a bad day. You know, she had toilet accidents three times a day. But when we write poetry, it makes us pause. Which way do I want to go with this? When my mother was first diagnosed with Alzheimer's, she took those black composition book and she began signing her name, Matsue Kakugawa, very clearly. And she said, so shame if I forget my name when I go to the bank to cash my social security check. And she began filling in, and she filled in about five of these. My brother made fun of her, said, oh, there she goes, writing his, her big novel. And it was all make fun of her. Well, I took my pen, and this is what it came uh, came to five notebooks. Soon after she was diagnosed, she began to fill a composition notebook with her name. So shame, she said, if I can't sign my name at the bank. It became her favorite pastime. Matsue Kakugawa, carefully written page after page after page, 
As her disease progressed, Matsue Kakugawa began to lose a letter or two, and soon she was reduced to scribbles and lines. Five notebooks, 100 sheets, 200 pages, 22 lines per page, 22,000 Matsue Kakugawa, 22,000 attempts to save herself from the thief who was stealing her name. And I think this is what poetry does. It really humanizes us, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great means of doing this. Thank you. That's beautiful. It's like, okay. as well as just like, okay, now we can keep talking. Like, this, this is, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm like, hold on, we're going to pause the podcast for a second so I can recover. Wow. <laughs> In May, I was invited to give the commencement ex- uh, address at my own alma mater. And I really stress this, that the one thing remaining for us to be is to be human. Mm-hmm. And how do we do this? I said, add the word poet next to whatever career you choose. I said, the poet care, uh, bus driver, the poet <laughs> doctor, the poet scientist, mm-hmm. the poet waitress, we become the best of people. <laughs> and I truly believe this. If we can all become poets, <laughs> I think we would humanize. It's a great Some humanizer. If you decide to tune in on this, <laughs> poet engineer. Poet <laughs> viewer. <laughs> Let me give you an example of this. I walked into my mother's uh, bathroom and, and I saw BM all over the floor, all over. And that was my first experience with this. And so the first time is always the most traumatic. So in my moment of trauma, what do I do? I pick up the smallest brush you can find in the household. So I'm on my hands and knees scrubbing her BM with my toothbrush frantically. With, and then I said, maybe there's a poem here. <laughs> now, the moment I said that, I was no longer a poor caregiver scrubbing BM. I was a poet. Hmm. I have risen above that task of BM. And so I, my mind was elsewhere. I was thinking, what images can I use? How can I write this? There is a poem here somewhere. And this is the result. A feather ball and a toothbrush. It is 3 a.m. I am on my hands and knees with toothbrush in one hand, a glass of hot tap water in my other, scrubbing BM off my mother's bathroom floor. Before a flicker of self-pity can set in, a vivid image enters my mind, an image of a scarlet feather boa, impulsively bought from Neiman Marcus, delicately wrapped in white tissue, awaiting in my cedar chest for some enchanted evening. The contrast between my illusional lifestyle of feather boards, opium perfume, and black velvet, and my own reality of toothbrushes, bathroom towels, and BM at 3 a.m. overwhelms me with silent laughter. In becoming a poet caregiver again no. makes a difference, and it brings in the humor. And that's interesting. Know. Is it like a? It's almost like the the performative aspect of it is what sort of like elevates it. Do you think, or do you think yes. it's like it's making yourself see yourself from a different perspective, or how do you think? That's it changes really- your attitude mm-hmm. of what you're there for. And writing poetry helps you to select the right word. For example, if I say, I need, I am coping 
coping, embracing. Mm. I am embracing. Then the one word embracing can make such a difference in how you view caregiving. And so I think poets are so responsible with the language they use. It's not a free-for-all. Just write it down, what comes to your mind. But there are so much decisions to be made. How do I do this? What is my true feeling about this? And then, in doing so, I think, we sort of reinvent the truth that is there. Right. Like my mother, uh, her notebook, the truth was she was signing a lot of her name. And on the external level, it seems like a very foolish behavior of an Alzheimer's patient. But when you put a poetic pen to that, it rises above that, and it is to her benefit. And so I think writing poetry as, and I have two of my caregivers here, it, uh, it brings dignity. It brings dignity and compassion into whatever that we do. And I think this goes for all careers. Yeah. So this is why the poet has to exist. <laughs> That's beautiful. And it's, it is, I like that it's not, um, it's not so much about you know, an attempt to to turn it into an art per se or to yes. romanticize it. You're more mm-hmm. say, saying it as a way of like clarifying and transforming your own story is what I'm getting. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. That's, wow. uh-huh. And then that becomes the truth for us. Because mm-hmm. if I look at things, if I'm so tired, but then my poetry would go, let me try this. One day I thought, what would my mother say if she could speak? Because they are losing their voice. And sometimes you forget they too have a voice. And so I use Emily Dickinson's I'm Nobody, Are You Nobody Too? Emily Dickinson, I'm Somebody. And this is my mother's voice. If I could speak, this is what my voice would say. Do not let this thief scare you away. Do not let this thief intimidate you into thinking I am no longer here. When you see me, tell me quickly who you are. Do not ask me, do you know me? Help me retain my own dignity by not forcing me to say, no, I don't know who you are. Save my face by greeting me with your name, even if the thief has stolen all that from me. It shames me to such indignities to know I do not know you. Help me in this game of pretension that this thief has not stolen your name from me. My words have all forsaken me. My thoughts are all gone. But do not let this thief forsake you from me. Speak to me, for I am still here. I understand hugs and smiles and loving kindness. Speak to me and not around me. I am not a she or her or even a room number. I am still here. When I soil my clothing or do something absurd, do not tell me why didn't you. If I could, I would. I know I have turned into a monstrous baby. If I could, I would not allow this thief to let you live and see what he has stolen from me. I know my repeated questions are like a record player gone bad, but my words are gone, and this is the only way I know to make contact with you. It is my sole way of saying, yes, I know you are here. 
This thief has stolen everything else except for these questions, and soon they too will be stolen away. Yes, I am still here. Help me retain my dignity. Help me remain a human being in the shell of a woman I have become. I beg that you not violate the person I still am. In my world of silence, I am still here. Oh, I am still here. And sometimes our own poetry becomes a voice to help us. Right. Because many times we are we're all human and it's a very difficult uh, to be a caregiver. And sometimes I'm against the wall and I do want to say, oh no, why did you do that? And my own voice, my own poetry would come to remind me and I could hear her say, if I could, I would. Right. If I could, I would. I think it was a really powerful message mm-hmm. to think about, you know, a lot of the, the issues we're facing in the country at the moment. There's mm-hmm. a lot of um, not seeing people in terms of their, our human sameness. So that's, that's cool. Got to send everyone little notebooks. Yes. Give everyone a notebook. You're now a, and a poet. Tack that right. On that end. would help. Yeah. That's great. So. We're reaching, we're starting to reach the end of our time um, uh, here. Is there a, um, is there one more? Maybe on a lighter um, note. <laughs> on a, yeah. Something on a lighter <laughs> note. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't all the, uh... I'm going to read a theme from uh, Dangerous Women. Dangerous Women. We are the dangerous women who never say no to sunsets, sunrises, evening strolls, or double martinis. We are the women who speak to you in supermarkets over apples and cabbages, making you wish you could follow us home. We are the women taught by mothers to make you feel we could be yours no matter who you are. We are the women who extract extraordinary days out of the ordinary, leaving ache and joy in empty spaces. We are the women who write poems, send you copies without permission, capture moonbeams in your name. We are the gatherers of dreams, fantasizing scenes in private places where your secrets live. We are not easy to be with after sad movies, romantic novels, or on Sunday afternoons. We are so damn demanding, you wish we had never met. Yet you know, we are the only poetry you have. Yes, we are the dangerous women, vulnerable, ageless, poetic, passionate, life with two feet slightly off the ground, We are the women you should avoid if you don't believe in Peter Pan and the first star of the evening skies. But pour us wine as the sun sets low, and we will hand you the key to things you don't know. Francis Kagawa, thank you. That's thank you. It was such a great. joy being here um, with you. So. <laughs> well, again, I'm uh, Stuart Canton sitting in for Frank Graham. 
Uh, this has been Coffee and Poetics at Brick House Gallery. Um, Francis Kakugawa, thank you again for being with us. It was great to meet you for the first time and learn about your work, and I'm sure that our viewers also will appreciate it. So Thank you. is there a way, I will say before we go, is there a way, to, what's the best way to get this book? Uh, it will be released next month. Okay. So you can go to uh, the major bookstores like Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Cool. Yes. Fantastic. Or so, get in touch yeah. with me and I'll send you Great. autographed copies or Great. to the publisher. The publisher's name would be here too. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yes. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you.